We are in the book of Ruth. This is part five of, I think this is my fifth sermon. In this awesome little short story. And because I know that some of you guys like me, you struggle with retention. And some of you guys are new and I'm dropping you into the middle of the story. I'd like to quickly just recap what's been happening up to this point. Uh, the book is named after Ruth. She's one of the main characters in the story. It's crazy that the book is named after Ruth because she's not an Israelite. This is the only book in the entire Old Testament, all 39 books, that's named after a non-Israelite. Pretty significant. But what makes it more significant is the fact that she's a Moabite. That's, a, that's, that's really significant because the Israelite perception in the view of the Moabites was very, very low. They didn't have a very good opinion of the Moabites. Kind of like ISIS. We don't have a good opinion of ISIS. Like, like It's really crazy that this book is named after her. The only book in the entire Old Testament named after a non-Israelite. And it sets during the time of the judges. This is pre-Israelite monarchy. So there are no kings at this point in history for Israel. It is during the days of the judges. And it is a very dark time in Israelite history. It's a very dark time. And there's a famine that's come to the land, to Bethlehem. And you may remember... During this month, we, we celebrate the birth of a really important person who was also born in Bethlehem. And so Bethlehem is where the, the story begins. It means house of bread and, of course, lots of irony because there's no, there's no food. There's a famine in the house of bread, like saying the Wonder Bread store had no bread. Lots of irony by the use of the narrator in the story. And it centers upon a man, his family. His name is Elimelech. His wife, Naomi, their two sons, Malon and Kilion. And... Elimelech makes the decision to move his family out of Bethlehem to Moab. There's no food. He's in a tough spot. Tough economic conditions. No food. Going to move his family out of Bethlehem across the border to Moab. At first, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Seems like common sense. But as we examine the story, we realize that Elimelech has seemingly forgotten what his name means. That my God is King. And he seems to go at his, go at his own. He seems to rely upon his own self, his own ingenuity. He's in a tough situation. And so he evaluates things based on dollars and cents, kind of like through this economic lens. And it's not necessarily wrong, but it becomes wrong when you completely discount that reliance on God. And that's what he does. He moves his family to Moab. They get to Moab. And Elimelech dies. His two sons, Malon and Kilion, they get involved in relationships they shouldn't be in. Some of you, you're in relationships you shouldn't be in. You know it. You know it. Then they marry these women, these Moabite women. And then they die. And Naomi is left with her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. She's buried her husband. I mean, she's buried her two sons. It's a very sad opening sequence of this story. And you think about, why did Elimelech move his family to Moab? He moved his family to Moab so they wouldn't die, and now they're dead. Moral of the story, God alone holds life and death in his hand. You don't, Elimelech. 
Naomi's working in the fields. And she gets news. Chapter 1-6, she gets news. God has come to intervene on behalf of His people. Come to the aid of His people. The rains have returned. The famine is over. She gets to go home. She's been stuck there. can't imagine that. Right? You bury your husband, your kids, and, and, and you're stuck there in this foreign country. Perhaps she may very well be the only believer of the true God there in Moab. And so she, she finds out the famine's over while in the fields of Moab. She, she sets out for Bethlehem. She can go home. And initially, it seems that her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, are going to come with her. And then she tells them, no, no, don't come. And I always struggled with this. Like, you know, it's like the scene in the movie where the little boy is telling the dog, stay, can't come. And he's crying. And the dog looks like it's crying. It's very sad. And I'm like, well, why can't they come? And as I've said in, in past sermons, it's not that... Naomi didn't love Ruth and Orpah, but you have to understand she wanted what was best for her two daughters. And in that culture within the ancient Near East, a woman's well-being would be directly tied almost always to another man. Her economic well-being would almost be directly linked in most cases to another man, be it a father or a husband, or if she was widowed, her sons to take care of her. And she knows if they come with her, her Moabite daughters-in-law are going to have a very difficult time integrating socially into the Israelite culture. Why? Well, for a lot of reasons, I said in the opening sermons, you can go back and listen to those online, but there's a very low view, a very negative view of the Moabites from the Israelites. And she knows they're not going to fit in, Like, let alone meet a guy, get married. They have a better chance probably of getting struck by lightning than coming back and meeting a guy and getting married. And that potentially could be the difference between having food to eat and not having food to eat. Yes, she loves her daughters, but she, she, she wants them to survive. And so she tells them, you need to stay. You need to find yourself a nice Moabite boy. You need to get married. Okay? And you just got to do that. You got to listen to me. So Orpah and Ruth, they're crying. They're telling her, no, we're not going to go. Then she's crying. You need to go. We don't want to go. Finally, after much convincing, Orpah leaves. But Ruth doesn't leave. She clings, the text tells us. She clings to her mother, Naomi. This is her mom for all intents and purposes. Like they, they buried people together. Been through a lot. And throughout this, Naomi makes some very troubling comments. Which until I started studying this, I always kind of had Naomi up on this pedestal. Like we often do with other biblical characters. But Naomi's making very troubling comments throughout this story. She's complaining, and she's very angry, and she's very bitter toward God. She feels like God has given her the shaft, that he's just been unfair. She's mad. Very, very mad. And then finally, in verse 15, she makes even more troubling comments. She finally tells Ruth, Ruth, look, your sister-in-law, Orpah, she went back to her people. You need to go back to your people. Okay, just, just do it. Like, she returned back to her people, to her gods. You need to do the same. This would be like if I died and my mom told Diana, Diana, it makes most financial sense for you to go back to Allah, go back to Islam. It's like, all right, it, it, that may be true, but no, that's, that's the wrong answer. Um... As one commentator noted, if Naomi was the greatest example of faith in Israel at this time, it would be no surprise, no wonder, that God sent the famine in the first place as judgment upon his people. And of course, then after Naomi persists in trying to get Ruth to go back to her people, Ruth gives perhaps one of the most poetic statements in all of Scripture. And she tells Naomi, I'm not going. Where you're going, 
I'm going. Where you die, I die. Your people, they're my people. Your God, my God. And, and really, de facto, switches her membership from Moab to Israel. From Chemosh, their chief God, to Yahweh. Naomi says, okay, they get to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. They arrive at barley harvest. Naomi hasn't been there in at least 10 years. She's coming in. They're like, Naomi, is that you? It's like, is that, is that you, Naomi? And of course, she makes things really awkward. And she says, don't call me Naomi. There's nothing pleasant about me. Her name, Naomi, means pleasant. So, I mean, it's like, I imagine if I hadn't seen you, Jordan, 10 years, and I'm like, Jordan, is it you? Like, don't call me Jordan. Call me Mara. I'm like, this is uncomfortable, right? If I, yeah, okay. That's, that's Naomi. She, she makes it really awkward, really uncomfortable, and she is essentially the original Eeyore. I said that, you know, like Christopher Robbins. It's not that she doesn't have anything to be thankful for. It's almost like she wants to be mad at God, almost like she wants to be angry at God. I mean, the fact that she's returned to Bethlehem is only because God has interceded and intervened on behalf of his people and lifted the famine. So the fact that she's there is owing solely to God. And yet, she has the first thing out of her mouth is talking trash about God. She's angry. She's been through a lot. She's buried people. You know, it's, it's, she's been through a lot. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. My life's so bitter. God's just, just given me such a terrible, horrible life. Of course, throughout this, I mean, just being a terrible example to Ruth. I mean, if I'm Ruth, I'm thinking, oh, that, that Yahweh doesn't seem really all that great. So some of you are, are, are terrible examples to, to new believers, to unsaved people, and you call yourself a Christian, you are. Much like Naomi. So they get there, and they, they got to make it, right? And so chapter 2 begins, and, and the narrator gives us a little little cue that there's this guy, Boaz, that might come into play at some point in the story. He's a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's husband. And, and so they got to eat. So Ruth asks, she's like, hey, Naomi, can I go in the fields? Can I glean? I like to glean, because we've got to eat food. And, and keep in mind, this is dangerous. Okay, Up until this point, there's a big contrast between these two characters. Naomi is a realist, much like her husband Elimelech. She evaluates everything through terms of dollars and cents. She's very pragmatic, very practical. Whatever works, whatever makes the most sense, I'm going to do that. Ruth, very different. She's a risk taker. The fact that she asked permission in the beginning of chapter 2 to go glean in the fields, like that's a dangerous thing, as we're going to see. It's mentioned three different times, the possibility of her being verbally or physically assaulted by going to do that. Ruth's a risk taker. She left her family knowing that she probably would never meet another guy that she could potentially live in poverty her whole life. She's a risk taker. She's loyal. She's optimistic. A, a lot of contrast between characters as we've learned and studied up to this point. So she goes, Naomi says, sure, go and glee in the field. I, I pray that you might find favor with, with someone. And the reason she says that is because even though within Israelite law, you couldn't touch the corners of the field, you had to leave that for the poor people, for the widows, for the orphans. And if you were harvesting anything, you dropped it on the ground, that had to be left for them. People were frequently denied access to come into the fields. Most of you guys are familiar with those laws, right? You had to leave the corners of the field for the poor people. If you dropped anything during harvest, you had to leave that. But what I learned is that people would frequently be denied access. They say, I'd like to come and glean. They'd say, no, shove off, go somewhere else. And they wouldn't be able to come into the fields. So she shows up at a field. She asks permission to glean. She gets permission. And it just so happens the field that she's at is Boaz's field. We know a little bit about him. We will. And then Boaz happens to show up and check on his field that day. Then he happens while he's there to notice Ruth. And then he decides to come talk to Ruth. And then he decides to be very kind to Ruth. 
And he says, hey, Ruth, um, I heard everything that you did for, for Naomi, and I just want you to know that you can come glean in my fields any day, and you're safe here. I told, I told my servants, no one's going to give you a hard time. No one's going to lay a finger on you. No one's going to touch you. And oh, by the way, if you want to drink from the water canteens over there, you can. A silly thing, right? Drinking from the water canteens, but in a culture in which women and foreigners would be the ones to fill the canteens for the male servants so they could drink out of them. It's very shocking that he makes these comments in chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 because she's both a woman and a foreigner. He says, you can, you can come glean in my fields as long as you want and uh, hang out with my female servants and, and you should have plenty of food. He creates a very safe place. He is a good man. He's a noble man. He's a righteous man. He's what right looks like. And that's where we pick up today, chapter 2, verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. There is a chronological separation of time between verses 13 and 14. Up until verses 13, she's been working in the fields all day. Then stop for verse 14, it's lunchtime. And Boaz says, hey, hey Ruth, come here. You, you want to you you grab lunch with me? Just, just up until this, like, in, th- in case you thought, like, the kindness of Boaz had been exhausted, guess what? He's got more kindness to show to Ruth. And he asked her to have lunch with him. Gentlemen? <laughs> Stop reading my mind. You like a girl? It's okay. Ask her to have lunch with you. It's, I think it's a far better idea than, than asking her to, uh, to uh, a concert or a movie. You can't really talk at a concert or a movie. You can talk at, over dinner, over lunch. You can do that. And, and these ladies, the, the cool thing about the story of Ruth, it reads very much like a script, like dialogue back and forth. And there's been lots of talking, lots of crying, lots of talking, more crying than talking. And so Boaz, he's, he just says, hey, you want to you grab lunch? Guys, you want to you um, be intentional? Ask a girl. To lunch. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong being intentional, asking a girl to lunch. Would you like to have lunch with me? Would you like to have dinner with me? But you need to be like Boaz. He treats her very well. He treats her very, very well. Some of you have never had an example of what this looks like. Well, you do now. Treats her really well. Okay, so you're going to ask her out to dinner. You're going to ask her out to lunch. Do it the right way. You pick her up. You dress nice. Say, I'll pick her up. I don't mean like on your bike. Or be like, yeah, I'll... I'll see you on the 71 bus, baby, right? Like, <laughs> where are we going now? We're going to the rot. Like, that's, that's, don't do that. See, you're laughing because some of you are like, that just happened to me this week. <laughs> no, what does Boaz do? Boaz treats her nice. He treats her well. He's a good man. He's not a chintzy man. He's not a cheap man. He treats her well. What should you do? You should be like Boaz. You should treat her well. You should treat her well. You should pick her up. You gotta have a car. You gotta borrow a car. You pick her up. You take her out somewhere. You say, I don't know where to take her. Okay. If, if they're, if you, if you go to a place and you have to get napkins out of a dispenser, probably not the place to take her. <laughs> probably not the place to take her. You say, where do I take her? I wanna take her somewhere nice. I wanna be like Boaz. <laughs> if, if the silverware is made out of plastic, <laughs> And you have to peel back a plastic 
to get to the plastic silverware, don't take her there. Maybe, I don't know what all the options are, but if they accept Flames Cash, probably not, not the place to take her. I don't know, there's more options now than when I was a student. You take her somewhere nice where they've got linen napkins, where there's not someone wearing a uniform that looks like your high school brother taking your order behind a little cash register. You take her somewhere nice, and you pay for her. You don't, she doesn't pay for herself, you don't go Dutch. It's a terrible, tragic thing. It's happened to the Dutch. I don't know what's going to happen to the Dutch. No, no, you're Christian. You pay for You're like Boaz. Ladies, do you agree? Guys. You guys, you may not have much game, but you should still be able to take the field if you do this, so. Now, now to be fair... Okay, because you know how I'm, I'm a stickler for, for the text. To be fair, we do not know what's going through Boaz's mind right now. And, and honestly, and I've been looking at this text and preparing for next week's message, I think Boaz is a rather slow mover. And honestly, if, for all intents and purposes, he may have zero ulterior motives and he's just being kind. And I think, honestly, it's probably where we have to go with. I think we can make certainly applications of the text at this point. But Boaz is just being a nice guy. He's just been a nice dude. And uh, he's a great example, honestly, guys, of how we should treat people. Whether it's a curl that we like or just someone that, honestly, we, we, we notice that they're, they're alone. They, no one really hangs out with them. No one talks to them. So I go down to their room and I say, hey, you want to come to a small group with me tonight? You want to grab lunch with me? Um, he's a great example in all situations of, of how we should be kind and show the kindness that has been shown to us by our Savior. We jump to verses 15 and 16. It says this. When she rose to glean, so lunch is over, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. This is essentially what takes place. They have lunch. She gets up. She goes back to the field. Boaz, he asks all the young dudes to come over. He says, young dudes, come here. All the young dudes that work for him. Guys, I want to talk to you for a second. All right, so Ruth over there? Yeah, we know Ruth. Um, and, and as we've said, for whatever reason, um, and we know this from chapter 2, she's very self-conscious. She knows that she sticks out. It could be because she talks different, she looks different, she's from a different country, we don't know, but it's very evident, obvious to everyone, this was in the prior sermon, that, that she is self-conscious of her uh, of herself, and she knows she sticks out, and so it's very noticeable who she is. And so he tells all his young dudes, he say, make sure when you're harvesting, I want you to actually intentionally, while you're harvesting, throw pe- throw uh, some of the barley that you've harvested just onto the fl- on the ground. And I can imagine some of the guys are like, wait, what did you say? Like, we know that like the law tells us that if if we are harvesting and we accidentally drop it, we have to leave it there. But you're saying that we shouldn't. In- yes, I'm saying you should intentionally when you see her when she's behind you, throw it on the ground for her. And perhaps Boaz maybe anticipated people saying, well, that's dumb, or maybe he anticipated them being jealous or having a bad attitude or, or whatever it may have been. He says, oh, by the way, listen, um, if, if you guys have a problem with that, just keep your mouth shut. Okay, Keep, keep your mouth closed. Do, do not rebuke her. Do not reproach her. You're not going to insult her. You're not going to make fun of her. You're not going to harass her. You're not going to embarrass her. Okay, I've already guaranteed that this is a safe place for her. You understand? Yeah, we understand, Boaz. Okay. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening, 
Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an epa of barley. Like you, I didn't know what an epa was until later this week. An epa is essentially 30, roughly 30 to 50 pounds of barley. This would have been equivalent to about two weeks worth of wages. Okay, like, like, as Mark Cuban says from Shark Tank, she's killing it right now. Like, she's killing it. I mean, she's just done two weeks worth of stuff in, in one day. And so, she comes home, verse 18, and she took it up and went into the city. A little bit different, like today, people live in the suburbs and they go into the city. In this day and time, people like live in the city and then they go out into the suburbs, into the fields to, to work. And she went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So she's got like 30 to 50 pounds of barley in a sack, carrying it up. And she's also got like her little, little to-go box from lunch earlier that day. Her mom, Naomi, sees her coming up the steps. And her mother, verse 19, her mother says this, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Like, Mama knows, like, somebody was taking notice of her daughter. Like, she just did, like, she's got 30 to 50 pounds of barley, probably on her shoulder, carrying it up. And she's like, what happened? Where were you? And before Ruth even gets a chance to respond, Naomi says this, Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. The wheels begin to turn in Mama Naomi's brain at this point. Verse 20, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. More on that in a moment. Verse 21, And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Verse 22, And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. She's found favor. Boaz has given her a job. She can stay as long as she wants until the harvest is over. And at this rate of two weeks to one day, she's just killing it. I mean, this will be enough for the whole year. And of course, at the end, Naomi acknowledges, make sure you do stay with his, with his, with his servants, lest you be assaulted. Like, this is a risky thing for Ruth. Ruth, from the very beginning, her personality, she's a risk taker. The fact that she is unconvinced by Naomi not to go back to Moab, it makes the most sense for her in the beginning. For her to go back to Moab. In this day and age, she is taking such a huge risk to come to Israel, potentially living in poverty for all her life, and, and even going in the fields and gleaning, a huge risk. She is a risk taker. She is loyal. She's optimistic. Naomi, man, what has happened to Naomi? Verse 20. She says this to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. If you've been with us through the last couple of weeks, this is sermon number five, this is not how Naomi normally talks. As I said at this point, she's like the original Eeyore. She's just mad about everything. She feels like God's given her such a raw deal. And now, like, 
God's just done some crazy work on her heart. And she's saying, blessed be the God who hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't forsaken us. He's still kind to us. What is going on? What is going on here? And then she tells her, it's possible that Ruth, as a Moabite, wouldn't have understood this. She's like, Boaz is one of our redeemers. And that comment has some implications that we must acknowledge uh, to squeeze the maximum amount of truth out of the text. Uh, this, this redeemer, this kinsman redeemer, it, it basically is this. A, a redeemer in Israelite culture, according to uh, Leviticus 25, it, it denotes a near relative who is responsible for the economic well-being of another relative. That's, that's what it is. I'll say it one more time. It, it, a redeemer, when she says, hey, Boaz is a redeemer, it denotes a, a relative who's responsible for the economic well-being of another relative. And there's really five examples that all come from Leviticus chapter 25. And I'll just quickly touch on them so you kind of begin to understand the significance of, of what all goes along with being that redeemer type. One, the redeemer is someone who would ensure that the property never passes outside the clan. You get in tough times, you have to sell your property, he redeems it back, he buys it back because the property was so significant in that culture too. Someone to maintain the freedom of individuals within the clan by buying back those who had sold themselves into slavery because of poverty. It's tough times. It's really tough times. You, you might end up having to sell yourself back into slavery. Someone who's your redeemer, that near relative, he buys you back out. Three, if someone has murdered a family member, the redeemer is... According to Leviticus 25, he tracks down and executes those people who have murdered your family members. Four, uh, to receive restitution money on behalf of a deceased victim of a crime. Five, to ensure that justice is served in a lawsuit involved with a relative. That, that's really mainly all coming from Leviticus 25. Now, there's another sense in which someone could be a redeemer. According to Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10, Deuteronomy 25, 5-10. In Israelite custom, a redeemer could be the unmarried brother-in-law who would be obligated to perform the duties of a redeemer by marrying the widow. And that's probably closer to how, how Ruth, or excuse me, how, how Naomi is seeing Boaz in this Deut Deuteronomy 25 way. So that's, that's Israelite custom. So the unmarried brother-in-law was obligated to perform the duties of a redeemer by marrying the widow. There's two really remarkable things about verse 20. We're going to squeeze verse 20 really hard. And some of you guys have been here last, have heard, this is just, you've been here along the whole ride, this is Sermon 5 for you, and, and you're like, Naomi's literally gone from like zero to hero. She's gone from much like her husband, Elimelech, who, who really just everything is, does that going to work? Adding up the numbers, two and two, it must equal four. There's no provision for anything else. She's common sense. She's pragmatic. She's practical. She evaluates everything. It's black or it's white. Um, like, that's just how it is. And, uh, yes, it, it's, it's remarkable that now she's saying, yeah, blessed be the Lord who hasn't forgotten us. But the old Naomi, I think, would have approached the situation and she would have said, oh, that was nice that Boaz was so kind to you. This Naomi says, Boaz, he's, he's one of our redeemers. 
That's really significant because technically, Naomi's wrong. Technically, Boaz isn't one of the redeemers. In fact, he's not even the nearest relative. He's not one of the redeemers. Because to be a redeemer, at least in the sense that I think Naomi's probably thinking about marrying, the, having uh, someone coming and the unmarried brother-in-law obligating and doing the duties of a redeemer and marrying the widow, he doesn't qualify for that. He's not a brother to Malon or Killian. You read Deuteronomy 25, 5-10, that's not the letter of the law. By the letter of the law, Boaz does not qualify to be a redeemer, most likely in this marriage context where maybe he's being kind because he likes Ruth. Like, And yet that seems to be how Naomi, I think, is thinking about this. And it's going to be very clear from next week's sermon that she is thinking of it in that way. So the old Naomi would have been like, yeah, Boaz, he's a nice guy. He treated you so well. But you know what? Technically, he's not one of the redeemers, according to Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5 to 10. According to Leviticus 25, like he doesn't really qualify or meet, meet, meet that by the letter of the law. That's, that's like, much like the old Naomi, like her husband Elimelech before, he evaluates the situation. There's a famine. We stay here. We die. We go to Moab. We live. Moab has food. There's no food here. Ordinarily, that's probably how people would think. Ah, but Elimelech, your God is king. There may not be food in Bethlehem. There may be food in Moab. But your God is king. He can return the reins right now if he wants to. I think Naomi is coming around. Her, her faith is really, I think, solidifying at this moment for her. Where she evaluates and views the situation as, yeah, technically not by the letter of the law. He's not one of the redeemers. But you know what? I think God could use him as a redeemer, even though technically by the, by the letter of the law, he's not. But maybe by the spirit of the law, God would continue to show mercy and use him anyways. She's growing in her faith, trusting God. Remember the old Naomi, she tells her daughters, go back because you have a better chance of being struck by lightning than like coming here and like getting married to a guy. The old Naomi had been like, yeah, there's no way he's a redeemer because let me tell you all the reasons why not. And now this Naomi is saying, yeah, not technically, but you know what? With God, anything's possible. Why? Because my God is king. He is king. And he can do that if he wants to. He can say to the mountains, move, and they move. He can speak the universe into existence, and it happens. I say that for any of you, maybe, who are in difficult situations right now, and you think, there is no way. Let me show you. And you you produce stuff. You say, for those all those reasons, oh, but have you not forgotten, like Elimelech, like old Naomi, have you forgotten too that your God is king? He can do that. Yeah, technically, Boaz doesn't qualify as a redeemer in that way, but you know what? He can do that if he wants to. Her faith is solidified. She's gone from this shallow, superficial, Instagram kind of Christianity, this dysfunctional view of God to, yeah, I think he could do it. God could use Boaz this way. She's been through a lot. She's buried her husband. She's buried her sons. And yet, somehow, when we face difficult situations like that, has a way to solidify our faith. 
and we see God in the giant, glorious, big way that he really is. You know, the other part of the story I really love is Boaz. <sighs> He's a stud. Uh, he is showing throughout the story this kindness. Kindness is a major theme. This covenant kindness, this hesed, this, this covenant divine, covenant kindness of God. And he's showing, he's sprinkling it all over Ruth. He doesn't have to. He doesn't owe her anything. He's not obligated to, to just be this awesome to her, but he is. And, uh, you know, you hear, like, God loves you, right? You, you hear this. God loves you. He's been very kind to you. You know Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like, we know these things. We know God loves us. We know he died for us. We know he's, you know, he's been kinder to us than, honestly, that, Anything that we've deserved, and yet sometimes there's a disconnect between our head and our heart. Like, we know it, but sometimes we don't feel it. And I'm reading this, and I'm reading verse 15 and 16, and I'm working through this sermon this week, and I'm, I'm just fighting back tears. And I'm thinking about after lunch in Boaz, she says, guys, come here for a second. She's like, Ruth, I want you to intentionally drop food off for her. Essentially drop some bar- barley off. And oh, by the way, then you're going to rebuke her. None of you are going to reproach her. None of you are going to insult her. None of you are going to embarrass her. None of you are going to harass her. This is a safe place for her. Boaz is this, he's just a man, but he is this, this really, honestly, he manifests all these fatherly, heavenly father-like characteristics and his love and his compassion and his kindness and his protection for Ruth. And, and I don't know if you're like me, and if you are, maybe you, you relate to this. Some of you, you're not, but... You know, growing up, like, I never saw that. I never met a guy like Boaz. When I I think of someone in this position to act this way, you know, I think of my dad. A lot of you guys can understand this. You relate to this. My dad, he's not like this. He's mean. He's harsh. He's cruel. I could call him up right now. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You grew up, you didn't feel safe with your dad. He'd be emotionally abusive. He'd be physically abusive. You'd wake up, you didn't know if you're going to get nice dad or mean dad. I could call him up on the phone right now, say, hey dad, he'd say, uh, 50% chance. He'd be like, hey, what do you want? I want to see how you're doing. All right, well, I'm fine. What do you want? Well, uh, I, I just wanted to see how everything's going. Okay, hurry up, spit it out. All right, I got somewhere to go. I don't have time for this. What do you want? See, some of you, you know exactly what that's like. Your dad wasn't like that. Like, Boaz is this awesome, really, picture. He's just a man, but he's this awesome picture of, of the kindness that our Heavenly Father shows to us. For some of you, it's a major disconnect because you're like, I've never, I've never met someone like that. I've never known someone like that because living at home, it was like on eggshells. I didn't know if I was going to have dads, you know, take a, take a fist and swing it at me. It was 50-50 chance. A lot of you, it's, you know, I'm studying this passage, I'm seeing this, and it's just, man, I'm just tugging on my heartstrings. I'm, I'm, I'm fighting back tears last, this past week and studying for this, this sermon. I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this man who is doing everything he can, going over and beyond, showing kindness, and making Ruth honestly feel safe. <coughs> making Ruth safe, protecting Ruth, watching over Ruth. Some of you, you've never seen that before. So what does that even look like? It looks like Boaz. Truthfully, it looks like this guy, Boaz. Just a man, but a man who exhibits this divine kindness, this love, much like our Heavenly Father. 
I don't know where you're at tonight, but it reminds you that there is a God who loves you. You may have been in a really tough season like Naomi. Some of you, you, you may have literally buried people this year. You've said goodbye to people that you love. You've, it's just been tough. I would remind you, maybe if this story helps at all, if it just re- relates to you and you can, you can see Naomi's journey and Ruth's journey and be reminded by Boaz, by God, blessed be the God, he hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't. It may seem like he's forgotten. He hasn't forgotten. He really hasn't. He loves you. He died for you. That's, that's what we're celebrating right, right now. Advent. This season, this Christmas season, that's what we're celebrating, right? Why is this such good news? It's good news as that day in history, that, that glorious day in history when the angels announced, behold, I bring you great tidings. Good news it shall be to all people, for today is born in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ, our King. It is good news. It's all good news for all of us who are in that desert season of our life, and we've just been hurting. To be reminded, as Naomi has been reminded, God has not forsaken us. He hasn't forgotten about us. He loves us. I pray that you guys would be encouraged tonight. You'd be deeply encouraged that you would go beyond from from knowing these things to feel them. And so I want to pray for you, not that you'll know these things, but that you will feel them, that you'll feel this right now. So as the band comes, that's what I'd like to do. God, we love you. We love you, God, because you first loved us. You are a good God. Lord, for those of us in here, we've never had a picture. We've never had that that human picture, that human interaction with, with someone who mirrors your heavenly love and kindness like a Boaz in our lives. But, oh, I pray that we would be encouraged as we see that example of him exemplifying really who you are, God, that you love us, that you're a good God, and that you never leave us nor forsake us. You're there with us at night, Through our tears, you're there with us when we say goodbye to people we love. You're there with us when we bury people. You're there with us every step of the way. You never leave us. You never forsake us. Oh, I pray that that would bring hope and encouragement. That Some of these people tonight, they would be encouraged and reminded of your divine covenant has said. They might be able to connect with Naomi's story and that They would come to that point and say, no, he hasn't. He hasn't forsaken me. He hasn't forgotten about me. He loves me. I'm loved. I'm loved. And you are. I pray that you'd encourage the people here. Not just that they know this stuff. Like we read this story. Like we we know this story. I I want us to feel this, Lord. I want us to experience our theology right now. Right here. Move in our hearts, in our minds, in who we are, God. Amen.